This webinar was previously recorded and converted to a listening format. Now, please enjoy this timely and valuable market information from expert commercial real estate investor James Kandasamy and special guests. Welcome to Achieve Wealth through Value Add Real Estate Investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, through LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. Hi, this is James Kandasamy from Achieve Investment Group. Today, we're going to be doing an educational uh, webinar, um, just primarily for passive investors, and, and I'm happy, happy to do this webinars. And uh, today's topic is going to be 2023, uh, how are you going to be protecting your equity during these uncertain times? And uh, I think I have a mistake here, a typo here. Let me just take this off. With Jeremy Rowe, uh, who's one of my good friend. And Jeremy is a well-known speaker and I'm going to be introducing him in a short while, but let me just quickly introduce myself and Shanti, who's my wife and a partner. So I'm the CEO of Achieve Investment Group. Um, in case you all do not know us, I'm family responsible for acquisition and investor relationship. And Shanti runs the property and construction management. We are deal sponsor out of Austin. Uh, where we focus on both Austin to San Antonio I-35 corridor. Uh, we have done more than 0.5 billion asset under management, more than around 4,000 units right now, 19 apartments. All, um, we had like almost sold half of our asset last year uh, in, in March of 2022, which was a really good time. We raised almost $81 million uh, from our investor base. Right now, we're working on uh, ground-up constructions. We have like almost 1,000 units um, under development with uh, around 300-something under construction. And uh, we also vertically integrated uh, asset property management and construction management, uh, primarily on the development side. We don't do the uh, actual general construction of the asset. We usually hire a, a GC for that. I'm also author of two best-selling books, which is Passive Investing in Commercial Real Estate. It's very popular book. If you don't, if you not read that book yet, you should because a lot of things that's happening right now in the market. I wrote about it uh, in 2019 when the book was published, primarily about bridge loans and when it, you should be taking that kind of loans. Uh, bridge loans inherently comes with variable uh, rate loan, and it was clearly mentioned in that book. And uh, I think maybe like four to five months ago, I launched another book which is called Smarter Doctors, primarily for doctors. And I know I didn't promote that book a lot, but that book is out there. And if you are in the medical profession or if you have anybody who are in the medical profession who want to know about passive investing, that'd be a really good book. Um, and also we have a large uh, Facebook group, uh, which has like almost 20,000 members. If you want to join, it's called a multifamily investors group in Facebook. 
you should join us. Uh, our newsletter is being read by almost 5,000 people per week. So you should definitely join our newsletter. Just go to achieveinvestmentgroup.com and sign up uh, into our newsletter, uh, achieveinvestmentgroup.com. So without delay, I'm going to um, introduce uh, Jeremy Roll, who's a sought-after speaker in a lot of uh, conferences. And he has graciously willing to share his knowledge um, of passive investing. He's a huge investor. He has invested for many years and I'm going to be passing over the pattern to him right now. So Jeremy, uh, let me make sure I'm able to promote you as a host Then you can continue your presentation. All okay. right. Am, am I good to go? Yeah, go ahead. Great. Okay. Let me just try sharing my screen. Give me a second, everybody. Yeah, um, I just want to make sure everybody understands. So this this is a webinar, but we also will be packaging it as a podcast. So I will be asking questions to Jeremy throughout the presentation so that it's not one way straight. And if you have any questions, just use the Q&A box and type it in. And, and, and as I said, Jeremy is a very well-known uh, passive investor. In fact, I call him like a super passive investor. You know, he's super conservative and he knows a lot of industry out there. So go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah, James, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for everyone who's joining us here who's listening to this through the podcast. Um, my name is Jeremy Roll. Uh, I am a full-time passive cash flow investor. I've been investing in alternative investments. It started with actually real estate, and I've done a, a lot of other things too back in 2002, so over 20 years ago. And uh, But I've been investing full-time as a passive investor since 2007, so over 15 years ago now. Um, so um, for today... Uh, we're going to be talking about protecting your equity in uncertain times, um, strategies for today's challenging investing environment. And uh, to say that today is challenging is probably a significant understatement. Um, I know you guys already, a lot of you already know this, but um, I like, you know, I, I've had multiple conversations this week alone on the phone when somebody says to me, well, what makes sense right now? What are you investing in? And my answer is very straightforward. I say, okay. We're in June of 2023. Let me pretend it's June of 2008. What do you think is a good investment right now? And then the phone goes silent. And that's kind of how I feel like we are today. And so you have to be very, very careful right now. Very high probability that we're going to be facing a recession later this year, or early next year, uh, based on a lot of data. And um, so there's a lot of challenges potentially coming up. We're going to get a little bit more into that as I get into the investment, the um, presentation here. And I'm probably going to do about 20 to 30 minutes of a presentation, and then I would strongly encourage and welcome any Q&A whatsoever. Uh, it could be an ask me anything type situation or regarding the presentation itself. Any way that I can help anybody out there, just feel free to ask questions. Not, not a problem. I'm a very big proponent of Q&A just to help as much as I can. So first very important point is I am not a financial advisor or investment advisor. I'm also not an accountant or attorney or anything else. And so this presentation reflects solely my perspective as an investor. It's not to be taken as investment advice. Uh, James asked me to come on here and just kind of present what I think is happening right now, what to watch out for. And that's what I'm doing, but I'm definitely not a financial advisor, investment advisor. This is not financial advice. So I went into my background a little bit. Um, so we talked about the fact that I've been a passive cash flow investor for over 20 years since 2002, full-time since 2007, so over 15 years. I also manage a private group of over 1,000 investors. I started that back in 2002 as well. I'm co-founder of a nonprofit called For Investors by Investors. Uh, that was 
uh, co-founded in 2007. Um, and those are public investor meetings, mostly in Southern California, with the absolute uh, core philosophy of no sales pitch. That's why we co-founded it. We actually lose money off of that every year, but hopefully we help you know the community and stuff to learn. So that's been going on for over 15 years. I've also been an advisor for a, a well-known uh, real estate crowdfunding website called Realty Mogul that some of you have probably heard of. Um, I was actually their only outside advisor who wasn't an investor. I started with them before they launched in 2012. And uh, in fact, uh, little known fact is that the first few deals that they had posted, it was just me and the two co-founders at underwriting them. And then um, they created an investment committee. I was part of that for a number of years. And I'm still, I haven't advised, done really much formal advisory for them for in a while, but I still have that relationship with them. Also, I have an MBA from the Wharton School, and I didn't put it down here, but I did uh, have over 10 years of uh, experience in lower and middle level management positions in the corporate world before I became a full-time passive cash flow investor. The two last companies I worked for were um, Toyota headquarters, the car company in Los Angeles, as well as Disney headquarters, which I'm sure most people know that brand, obviously, in Burbank, California. Um, I'm heavily diversified as a strategist because I tend to be pretty low risk, as James had mentioned. So I'm currently invested in over 60 LLCs uh, actively right now, and I've been more than in more than 150 to 200 LLCs since 2002. Um, left the corporate world in 2007 thanks to the passive cash flow, and so I'm very heavily cash flow focused, pretty low risk, and typically looking for stuff that's let's say 80 to 100% occupied, stabilized with the philosophy that I want to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow, and not much has changed because I live off the cash flow. So I'm all about predictability of cash flow. Um, and that's an important thing to understand. So when you're thinking about this presentation and you're, you're listening to it um, from me, just keep in mind that I only invest in that type of box. Whereas there's a thousand ways to invest, none of them are wrong. Some people invest in only high-risk development, other type things. That's fine. That just whatever makes the most sense for each person. But my presentation is coming in from my angle of being a lower risk passive cash flow investor. This is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, through LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. Yeah. So... I think Jeremy, I mean, that's good that you explained that because uh, I think in my book, I also talk about when someone is young, you know, they can always take some risk, you know, in, in going for high appreciation, low cash flow deals. Whereas when you are more, you know, more, when you're more risk averse, uh, later part of life where you, you want that cash flow, right? You want to go for cash flow, lower risk kind of deal, right? So it looks like I mean, you explained yourself saying that why you're investing in, in cash flow, right? So. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so um, I'm a big believer there's a thousand ways to invest. None of them are wrong. It's really a question of whatever's optimal for the person and whatever makes sense for that particular person. So um, so why am I focused on protecting my equity right now? So let's actually rewind a little bit the past few years. So um, 2020, we had a pandemic and a stock market crash that was very quickly propped up by record money printing, record quantitative easing, and other pandemic measures that I know you're all familiar with, eviction moratoriums, foreclosure, forbearances, stimulus, all kinds of stuff. 2021, we had record money printing and quantitative easing, which pulled forward consumer demand and increased asset prices. It did both of those, right? It, it very much impacted the economy and very much impacted asset prices together. 
And so 2021 was what I call the year of the tailwinds for investors, right? It was just, you could almost do nothing wrong in that particular year, just a lot of money chasing deals and a lot of things going upwards. Um, 2022, um, the stimulus and pandemic measures ended. Consumer savings reverted back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, and the consumer demand that we talked about before that was pulled forward had been very much spent and is now mostly behind us. So um, depending on which data you read or believe, there was about $3 trillion of excess stimulus money that got into the hands of consumers specifically. Um, and um, most measures now, or most um, data shows that uh, the majority of that money is now spent. Um, we probably have somewhere in the midst of a half a trillion, two trillion of the three trillion left. What's interesting too, is that if you parse out how it's left and who it's left for, most of the lower and middle income households have now fully spent it, whereas uh, some of the remaining is in the mid upper middle and upper income households that still have it. So that's interesting to consider too, but most of it will likely be fully spent by, uh, call it this fall. Um, and then of course, the Fed ended quantitative easing, started quantitative tightening and raised interest rates significantly last year in 2022. Uh, interest rates uh, first increase occurred in March of 2022. Um, and um, it's important to understand that multiple interest rate increases almost always increase cap rates, cause a recession, and reduce asset prices. And we've seen a little bit of this happen so far. We've seen increased cap rates, but because of increased interest rates. Now, um, we'll get into a little bit more detail later, but I, I don't think we've seen the full increase in cap rates because I don't think the cap rates have increased in as far as to reflect what returns are required by investors. We're gonna get into that a little bit later, but it has in, they have increased in response to cap rates. Um, and, Often uh, or most of the time, uh, multiple interest rate increases cause a recession. Now, based on a lot of indicators, uh, most people are expecting a recession sometime in the second half of this year, early 2024. That's very high probability. Of course, anything can happen, but I always like speaking of probabilities because that's how I think in terms of where's the highest probable scenario for me to watch out for. And uh, multiple interest rate increases almost always reduce asset prices. We've seen a reduction in asset prices in multifamily specifically, depending on which data you read or believe, um, it, it, we've seen reductions of 20 to 25% in multifamily prices. Um, what hasn't happened yet is uh, keep in mind that when you have a recession, usually rents go down. And when rents go down, especially in inflationary period for expenses going continuing to go up, you have stagflation, which means that you actually have a lower profit or NOI on a building. And when that happens, your asset prices reduce even at the same cap rate or multiple because of the fact that your profits are lower. So we've seen uh, you know, a couple of dominoes fall, but a couple of dominoes still haven't quite fallen yet that are likely and probable to fall uh, later this year or early next year. So 2022 was what I call the year of the headwinds. So 2021 year of the tailwinds, 2022 year of the headwinds. Um, and 2023, which we're in right now, is the year of asset price reductions and a possible recession. Um, so the Fed continues with quantitative tightening and raising interest rates. As, as everybody I'm sure knows here, the Fed paused their interest rate increases earlier. Uh, I think it was this week, unless I'm losing track of my weeks, you know, the summer is. But, um, and, but they did hint that um, right now, their most probable scenario is two more 25 basis point interest rate increases uh, based on serving all the Fed members. 
So we should expect at the moment continued in interest rate increases going into the second half of the year. Um, and sorry about this 15 to 20% here. I didn't update that data, but the latest data is showing 20 to 25% multifamily decreases likely have further to go. Um, and um, cap rates continue to increase, asset prices continue to increase, and a recession is likely coming up in the second half of the year. Now, as you know, um, another major challenge right now is inflation. And government published inflation is about 5% right now, uh, but real inflation is significantly higher. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, the government very uh, regularly changes the way it calculates inflation. And part of the reason why they do that is to try to keep the inflation measures uh, the most precise possible as far as reflecting what society is spending money on in a given time period compared to the past. But, um, you know, if you take a look at how they used to measure inflation pre-1982 when they started to make these changes, real inflation is running at about 9 to 10% plus. And you can actually find this calculated for you at a website called shadowstats.com. Again, it's shadowstats with an S.com, where they show the pre-1982 calculation, the current calculation. And so the reason why I'm mentioning all this is, you know, what is the real inflation number? I'm not sure any of us really know. But if you assume it's over 5% and maybe somewhere between 5 and 9 or 10%, then as an investor, one of your main goals should be to not fall behind uh, on inflation and, in fact, to stay ahead of inflation, right? So that you're actually growing the real value of your capital and not having it reduced. So it's very important to keep your eye on what is real inflation, what returns do you really need to target compared to what's published to make sure you're staying ahead and not falling behind. Something to consider. Um, so a big risk for real estate in 2023 is inflation. If um, expense inflation exceeds revenue inflation, then NOI decreases and the property value decreases. Now, that's what I mentioned before about what happens if we have rents go down due to a recession, for example, which is actually currently probable, and expenses to continue to go up. Um, and we've actually seen in some multifamily markets, like Phoenix, for example, um, rents already going down. The rents are already going down in certain cities. And so this is already starting. Uh, but a recession will likely make it uh, more widespread and possibly worse where it's already starting to go down. So this is something to keep an eye on. I would say that um, my number one concern of what people are not watching in multifamily right now is the likelihood that we will have a decrease in rents if, if we have a recession. I feel like right now everyone's focused on challenges associated with floating rate um, bridge loans, which makes sense because I know that's a very real challenge for a lot of people. But I don't hear anybody talking about what happens when rents come down, because that's actually the probable scenario right now if you believe that the highest probability is a recession. So yeah, somebody... so let me just me add, add that. So that's the only saving grace right now for multifamily, right? So a lot of people did bridge loan for the past two years because that's the only way people can do deals, right? So the only saving grace for all multifamily, I mean, not all, a lot of people who had the bridge loan is like, hey, the rents has not come down, right? That's the only positive thing. And if you're saying it's a possibility that's come down, then there's going to be a lot of domino effect there. I fully agree. That's actually why I'm taking the time to specifically point it out. I think the two things you're going to find as um, themes in 2023 in the second half are uh, recession and um, rents coming down and NOIs going down. Those are things that people haven't been talking about that much yet, but I think they're both unfortunately going to happen. But why so do at you least think for there's a possibility of rents coming down. 
Because if you take a look historically, what happens in a recession, rents come down and actually they come down across all asset classes. And I'm making a generalization, right? There are obviously going to be exceptions. There are going to be exceptional markets. There are going to be exceptional properties. There are going to be some properties that were so under market rents to begin with, maybe they don't have to adjust. So there's a lot of exceptions. I'm just making a generalization. But when people say, you know, um, multifamily rents won't go down because everyone always needs a place to live and there's a shortage of units and all this stuff, right? Um, you know, the, the statistics show that, that we're short 5 million uh, units or whatever the numbers are. Um, my response to it is, this is what happens in a recession. This is the typical dominoes that fall. You have people losing their jobs and they can't afford to pay the rent um, or they have getting reduced hours and they can afford to pay less rent. And what happens subsequently is a few different things. First is some people may lose their job, go back and live at home and they leave their apartment unit. Some people will either lose their job or perhaps get a reduction in hours and then take on a roommate. Well, where's that roommate coming from that's rooming with them to pay the rent? They may be coming from another apartment building and that person has left that apartment building, right? Some people will um, take a step down in quality of asset type. So they may go from a class C uh, multifamily building to a mobile home park if they need to. They may go from a class B to a class C, a class A to a class B. That again results in additional vacancies depending on which building you're in, right? And so this is the normal course of action that happens and the normal course of dominoes that happen in a recession. Now, I can't predict exactly what's going to happen. I'm just going with what's historically happened and extrapolating that into the future. Um, you know, so I can't tell you this definitively, but I'm going with the most probable scenario. And does that make sense, James? Yeah. So I think in 2008, I mean. A lot of times, I mean, when multifamily, from what I heard from people have gone through that is the household formation become very little, right? People start having roommates. That's the that's the biggest possibility, right? But but don't you think the, I mean, right now, if you look at the national average, uh, buying versus renting, right? I mean, you, it's like $1,000 different, right? If people want to go and buy a house just because the rates are so high, it'll be $1,000 more. So don't you think renting would still be a preferred method of uh, living in a in a sheltered place right so i think the only thing what you're saying is people might just drop a class i guess from a class to b class and b to c and maybe c to mobile home park i guess i, I do think people will drop classes i think people will uh group up and, and live together and i think some people will go live back home and i think all three of those scenarios result in higher vacancy for multifamily. So what about uh, the job market that has been, uh, you know, uh, strong until now? And what yeah. about soft landing that the Fed or some, some yes. people? Yes. So here, here's what's interesting about the job market. Um, statistically, and it's, it's, it's actually mind boggling to me that you don't ever hear about this in the media because the media likes to talk about the fact that job market is still strong because I guess it's selling eyeballs. But statistically, from the first month that the Fed starts to raise interest rates at the end of a cycle, the it takes 18 months on average for job losses to really start in a meaningful way. So what does that mean for us now? The first interest rate increase was in March of 2022. I personally was never expecting, and I continue to not expect, job losses to get significantly worse. They're just starting to tick up in the last two weeks. It's just starting now. But I never expected jobs to get any worse until the fall of this year, because that's the probability of what we should expect. So if you want to get rid of all the media and all the other noise you're hearing and just look at the data, that's actually what's to be expected. So that nothing is out of the ordinary at the moment. 
Yeah, and also a lot of uh, layoff in the tech job, right? I mean, they, I mean, a lot of tech people they get like six months, eight months of severance package, right? And they, they are not being reflected right now on the losses right now because of that package. So, the, all that's gonna come out soon, I guess, because all that getting expired, right? All that being used that, up, so it'll be reflected. That is one hundred percent true. That's another factor, and also the ratio of open jobs to um, people looking for jobs, I believe, is currently one point six to one, and it came down from about two to one at the peak. But once those people you just mentioned are going to come off the sidelines off their severance and start to really kind of take a job because they have to versus what they're trying to find optimally, that ratio is going to start to really uh, shrink. And that's going to happen at the exact same time, James, to your point, as job losses start to actually get much worse in every other industry, because it's really only the tech that had huge, huge layoffs. Um, that was offset by still a strong job market uh, in other sectors, but that's now we're at the end of all that. So um, I'm fully expecting the job market to get worse. And so is, so is uh, Powell um, in the second half of the year, because that's actually what you should expect from a probability perspective. What about the liquidity crunch that the Fed is talking about in terms of the bank lending? I mean, because you know, yes. of bank yes. failures and liquidity crunch. I'm already seeing it right now. A lot of banks have not uh, want to land anymore right uh, this is james kandasami thank you for listening to this podcast i appreciate you i know i provide a lot of value through this podcast and i want you to share it with your friends with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content go share it through facebook into linkedin through twitter through instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring thank you Let's go on with the show. Yes. So, so I think that we saw the impact of that very quickly in real estate because um, the the whole real estate piece, especially in the office side and some multifamily as well, uh, was seeing distressed very, very early on and quickly. And the banks saw that very quickly. Um, but here's what's interesting. Again, statistically, the first um, liquidity event tightening began in March of 2023 with a couple of the banks failing. Now, what you would normally expect once liquidity starts to tighten is that it would take six to 12 months for the full liquidity challenge to actually impact the market. And I'm talking about not just for real estate, but also for small businesses, et cetera, right? So we still haven't seen the full impact of, of that uh, lack of liquidity yet uh, in either real estate and or in small business. And that should get worse uh, in about three to um, nine months from now. That should be like the peak of challenge of liquidity. And so Interestingly enough, what's fascinating is that you start layering all these challenges together, right? Rents coming down, uh, job losses going up, liquidity getting worse. It's all at the same timing. And I'm pretty sure Powell knows that that's actually coming up. And I'm pretty sure that's why like, there might be one or two little more interest rate hikes, but he knows it's all going to really hit, hit everything. And so when you add all this up, James, all of this happening together, the probability of a soft landing is very low. I believe the Fed has only had a couple of soft landings in the past 50 plus years. Um, so on a percentage probability basis, the probability is very high that we'll have a non-soft landing looking at all the previous cycles. Yeah, the couple of the track record of Fed always messes up, right? It's very hard to get everything <laughs> right, right? So That's right. It's just hard to get it right. And then when you look at the fact that we had so much excess liquidity and so much excess uh, inflation in this particular situation right now that was manufactured because of the money printing, um, that increases the probability of a harder landing because you're having to revert to the mean. And it's when you're going up so much, you got to come down a lot to revert to the mean. 
and that is increasing the probability of a hard landing. Yeah, drop that. Yeah, let's go ahead. So, okay, so just to finish out this slide. So um, I talked about before that with inflation, like we talked about earlier, if expense inflation exceeds revenue inflation, then NOI decreases and the property value decreases, right? But if NOI decreases and the cap rates increase, right, because we have um, people losing jobs. By the way, just so you know, the stock market, Let's one more thing everybody should keep in mind in the future now, the stock market doesn't normally crash until after the Fed starts to cut interest rates. I'm going to repeat that again. The stock market does not crash in a downturn, usually until after the, the Fed starts to decrease or cut interest rates. So everybody's talking about the stock market looking great, soft landing, it's still high. This is actually all normal. This is a normal progression of the dominoes falling, right? And so it'd be abnormal if the stock market would have crashed by now. But keep in mind that that time will come as a, most likely. And when it does, that'll breed more fear for investors, less liquidity in the market, both in terms of banks and lending, but also even equity investors and debt investors, frankly. Um, and um, that will have cap rates most likely go up, right? Because people will be scared and the risk premiums will change. And that will likely create a compounding effect on, on property values. And just to, just to be clear about that, what I mean by that is that you have rents coming down, expenses going up, net operating, not operating income going down. Okay, so that's one way the value of the building goes down. And then you have cap rates going up at the exact same time for those other reasons. And now you have a compounding effect on property values decreasing further. So you have two different forces compounding on each other to make properties go down, property values go down. So th this is actually all the highest probability scenario at the moment, just based on how a downturn, a recession happens. So stuff you have to be very, very careful with if you're trying to protect your equity. Yeah, I think the other factor that I want to just add in is, I mean, past, you know, five years, six years, there's a lot of people who jumped in into the multifamily bandwagon, right? So and a lot of operators are new, right? And 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 they have never seen values going down or rents going down. They only experience rents going up, right? Because past 10 years, everything has been going up. Cap rate is compressing, you know, people are doubling their money and everybody celebrate as, as they're, I mean, as though they did the work, right? But now it's going to be really hard if you do not know how to asset manage a property when NOI is decreasing, right? How do you reduce expenses? So the experience level of the players, especially, I mean, on the syndication side, it's, it's going to be causing, you know, some issues, right? So, you know, that's that's going to be a, a big thing that I see right now. A lot of, I mean, even I can see right now with the cash flowing disappearing because the rates goes up. I mean, it's being helped by the rate cap that they bought, but they just, a lot of people just do not know how to manage the asset, right? They were hoping the property management company is going to do a great job, but uh, I mean, how if, if the, you know, if the market is going against them, right, it's really hard to manage. So a lot of people are really hoping that, you know, things will change once the Fed start cutting rates. But are you saying that when the Fed start cutting rates, the stock market, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's data that shows stock market may crash at that point of time? Right. And so when you look at, that's right. When you look at a normal cycle, um, you don't expect the stock market to fully crash until the Fed starts to lower rates. And the reason why that is, is because the Fed will not be lowering rates unless there is a major problem with the economy to the point where it's absolutely necessary. And this happens not just in an inflationary period, but in normal times as well. And that's when the stock market is then seeing, okay, things are really hitting the fan 
And, you know, that's when you get your big plunge. So yes, James, that's, I, I stressed that before because I don't think a lot of people realize that, but if you just look it up, if you look that up, you'll see what I'm talking about. Yeah. And also, I mean, if you look, if you read the Howard Marks book, right, Mastering the Market Cycle, right? I mean, the true definition of a down market is not like, I mean, right now, everybody is waiting. I mean, there's a lot of talk about in town saying that, oh, price are going to come down. Let's go and we are all going to go and buy great deals out there. But <laughs> there's a lot of people talking about the same thing. But that's not a true definition of a down market. A down market is when you can't really execute any purchase, right? For some reason, either there's no liquidity or there's no capital or stock market crashed and everybody's scared, right? That's a true definition of a down market, right? That's where the best deals are. But it's going to be very hard for a lot of people to execute uh, at that point of time. And that's when the real down market is. That's when the best deals are. But who can execute it at that point of time is, is, is the... It's going to gain, but it's going to be really hard to execute because yes, I, I agree with you 100%. That's what I was kind of alluding to before, James, which is that you know, we're not at peak fear, we're not at peak of peak of liquidity problems yet. We're not, and both of those are what's going to basically breed the best opportunities. So, we're not there yet, we're just not there yet. Yeah, um, and then I see a lot of misuse of Warren Buffett's uh team, right? Uh, buy when others are uh, buy when others are fear and you know, sell when people are greedy. I mean. That's completely misused code <laughs> at the wrong time. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so with this slide here, um, I, I, we already touched upon these points. So, I want to be clear. What I'm most concerned about right now is because I invest in stuff that's mostly stabilized and doesn't have a huge value add component to it normally. I have to be very careful in the value that I go into the asset at, right? Because I'm not going to expect a huge increase in value in the asset going forward based on the business plan and the way that I invest. And so keeping that in mind, my biggest concern are is now investing um, in an asset that might be worth less than six or 12 months from now for the reasons we discussed. So to me, my primary concern for 2023 is asset values are at risk. And therefore, how do I protect my equity and how do I um, avoid that type of challenge? Um, but at the same time, staying in cash is not a good solution as inflation is rampant and reducing the value of cash every day, which I know a lot of you know. So um, in order to mitigate these risks right now in terms of challenging timing, keeping cash, not being productive and, and being eaten away by inflation, my solution is, being, is basically to be focused on three different types of investments. Um, while I wait for more clarity about asset prices and potential recession and, until the current headwinds subside. Um, and so the three categories of investments I'm looking at, I'm going to get into each one of these in more detail in the coming slides, are um, unique investments with unusual pricing or significant built-in equity up front. And, and the purpose of that is to build in what I call padding on the buy so that if prices or asset prices do go down a little bit more from here, that you've actually already built in that padding and protected yourself from that um, possibility of prices going further down. Number two is investments in which I don't have to worry about asset prices decreasing. And I'm going to get into that in a more detail that'll make a little more sense when I get into that, that section. And number three is short-term investments that have relatively low risk um, instead of staying in cash due to inflation. So let's talk about that first one. And so unique investments with unusual pricing or significant built-in equity up front. So as I mentioned before, the whole purpose of this category is to protect myself from downside risk of asset prices decreasing. Um, so there's no doubt that like multifamily, long-term, there's a lot of asset classes that are very attractive, right? As far as 
long run, um, predictable cash flow. But in the short term and the current timing is challenging because asset prices are decreasing, we'll likely experience further price declines. So the challenge is to find opportunities today with unusual pricing or with significant equity built in up front so you can actually move forward on them today instead of having to wait until the prices fully adjust. Um, so um, I'll give you an example of what I've been doing a lot of in the past two years or so in the multifamily space. In fact, as I should have mentioned up front, I did not invest in one multifamily bridge loan opportunity. Um, and that was for many reasons, um, including the risk of, you know, interest rates adjusting because it's not as predictable as a fixed rate loan. So, um, so I was investing in 2020, 21 and 22 in tax abated opportunities. So um, they're hard to find. But what's interesting about them is that they have considerable built in equity at closing. And that's actually without any operational execution risk at the initial closing. So um, what a tax abated opportunity is in very high level and very quickly is you're buying an operator is buying uh, with a regular deal under um, contract. Um, one big important point about it is that it will be significantly under market rents and not just what an operator is saying, but actually real, really under market rents. Um, and then they will have had a pre-negotiated structure and agreement with the local housing authority so that they can convert half of the building into income restricted units and keep half of the building in regular market rate units. I'm giving you an example. These percentages can vary, et cetera, but this is what I typically see. So that you now have rent restricted, a half the units become rent restricted. Now, what's interesting about the rent restrictions is that they're typically guided by inflation. And it's not like this is um, rent control, like you know here in Los Angeles, where you know you can't increase more than 2%, 3% a year. No, it's actually based off of those housing authority published rent increase allowances. And so there are actually deals I'm in that have scheduled for 11% rent increases next year based off inflation that are rent restricted. So don't confuse rent control with rent restricted. They're two different things. And so, um, but you don't have control over the amount you're allowed to raise as a maximum. You can raise it less than the maximum allowable published rate, but you can't raise it more. So you can't optimize rent going forward necessarily, but you end up in uh, a situation where half of the building is, cater is being catered to um, typically 80% of the area median income and 60% of the area median income, a combination of those two. And so it's not someone who is crazy low income, you know, half of the area median income, et cetera but it's often 80 to 60 to 80% of the area median income to qualify for those units. And the reason why it was so key that the um, units had to be below market rent is because um, the buildings, it, it, there is a maximum published rent that's allowed to begin with. But when you buy a building that's significantly below market rents and you um, convert it to the structure, if it's below market rents enough, you won't have to actually reduce the rents to conform to the maximum rent amounts. And so the holy grail is to obviously convert a building where you don't have to reduce rents at that point because it already conforms to the maximum allowable rent amounts. And so um, long story short, when you uh, convert buildings into this type of structure, you often reduce your taxes by the equivalent of about 85% reduction in taxes, which is equivalent to about, uh, this says 20% reduction in expenses, actually about a 40% reduction in expenses. And um, and yeah, some of my numbers up here, based on what I've seen recently versus what I originally wrote, are, are a little bit off. But uh, bottom line is, is that 
um, you reduce the expenses by typically 40%. Now, what happens when you reduce the expenses but don't have to reduce the income? The value of the building at initial closing is significantly higher. And what I've seen as an investor is that, let's say you're investing a $100 million purchase, $30 million in equity, $70 million in debt. Often, the $30 million in equity, the $100 million value, it appraises at somewhere between $125 million and $150 million at initial closing because of the reduced expense ratio. And that means that the $30 million of equity that's invested is not only worth the $30 million of equity, which would mean the $100 million purchase price, but additional 25 to 50 million in equity at closing right away, okay, before you've even purchased the building. So what that does from my perspective is build in a tremendous amount of padding in case asset prices decrease. I look at it as a downside risk measure as opposed to like, oh, I just got a ton of equity built in without any operational execution risk thus far. Um, I actually, that's great, but I'm more defensive. So it's all about the padding in case that asset price decreases in the next six to 12 months, I'm still in a, in a very padded situation. So, um, so that, that was one example of, you know, how do you invest in something with kind of unique pricing, unique profile today to create that padding up front to protect again, asset prices decreasing. Second category is investments that don't have, where I don't have to worry about asset prices decreasing. And I know that sounds a little strange, especially for real estate investors, but just bear with me here. So, there are some investment types outside of real estate where you don't have to worry about asset prices decreasing because they're already going to decrease anyway. So, for example, I've been investing in ATM machines, those, um, you know, the cash machines, um, not the bank brands, but the kind of independent brands at the, you know, mom and pop hair salon, nail shop, et cetera, since 2008. And I've done really well with them. And what are they? They're essentially a case a screen, a keypad. That's a it for this computer. episode. This if you'd like components. to learn even what more, check out James's free audio book. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. What I care about you can get the audio book completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audio book. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for multifamily investors um, group thanks so, for listening to invest in join us again for another episode with, um, next week the see you then well in a recession based on my own experience and um i don't worry about whether the asset price is whether the machine's worth even less during a recession because that's not what this is about this is about uh hopefully uh, um a, a good cash flow stream that will continue during a downturn and continue throughout the life of the machine and so this is another way to invest as an example where you don't have to worry about the asset price decreasing in the coming months. It's all about that cash flow that you're looking for.